This is episode 170 of Alohomora for December 26, 2015. Hey everyone, and happy holidays, whatever holiday you may be celebrating. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Kat Miller. And I'm Rosie Morris, and I want to say happy Boxing Day to all of you UK listeners, because the rest of the guys out there just don't even know what that is, so yay us! Um, (laughs) And it's my pleasure to introduce today's guest, who is the lovely Denise. Hi Denise, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, My name is Denise, I live in Sweden, and I'm a Hufflepuff. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) I know quite a lot of Swedish Harry Potter fans, which is cool, because I don't think many people out there do, which is fun. Oh, cool. And, and apart from people that live in Sweden, of course, because they would know lots of Harry Potter <laughs> yeah. fans. But... I thought have... you were going to say you knew a lot of Swedish Hufflepuffs, which would have been very specific. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I thought you were going to say, I know a lot of Swedish. <laughs> do the Swedish covers have different, are, do they, are they different or are they, are they UK covers? Uh, we have our own covers and you have uh, talked about them on your cover book cover oh. shows. <laughs> that shows how little I remember. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually kind of funny. Uh, on the Swedish covers, Harry always seems to be in the air, either riding on a uh, buckbeak or a dragon, except for in the on the fourth cover, Goblet of Fire, where he's squatting on the ground, whatever, whatever mm. that means. Oh, I remember these now. I just Googled them. Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. They're always very realistic looking. Yes. Right. Cool. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. No problem. And just as a reminder, you guys out there, this week we are reading chapter 20 of Deathly Hallows, Xenophilius Lovegood. So make sure you have read that before listening. But first, we're going to hop on some of your comments from our discussion from last week, and which we, when we discussed chapter 19 of Deathly Hallows. And the first comment um, comes from a tweet that was sent our way. Um, and the user is Gibson Wands, who goes by Scott G. Um, and the comment quotes something from last week's chapter, uh, The Silver Doe, and the passage is, he had forgotten until this moment that they had arranged to meet. Um, and this, uh, Scott asks if this passage is a callback to a passage in Prisoner of Azkaban. And that passage was, he had a very strange dream. He was t- walking through a forest, his firebolt over his shoulder, following something silvery white. It was winding its way through the trees ahead, and he could only catch glimpses of it between the leaves. Anxious to catch up with it, he sped up, but as he moved faster, so did his quarry. Harry broke into a run, and ahead he heard hooves gathering speed. Now he was running flat out, and ahead he could hear galloping. Then he turned a corner into a clearing, and... And then he wakes up. So Scott asks if this phrase, where Harry has this um, sort of uncanny recalling of this doe as if he's seen it before, is actually referring back to this phrase in Prisoner of Azkaban, which is very insightful reading, I should say. Yes, (laughs) Yeah, I thought that that was brilliant. I honestly, I haven't had a chance to look back at Prisoner to see what's happening in that moment. Did anybody have a chance to look? Um, yeah, I haven't looked either, but it seems like, is this right after, it says the the, the passage before it talks about a Gryffindor party, so. And I think that's after a Quidditch match. Right, yeah. Yeah, but... so still discussing the match. Yeah. yeah. 
so in prisoner like it, the whole storyline aside from you know Sirius and and what's going on there is pretty much about harry remembering his parents and trying to live up to the kind of um you know legacy of his father so i've always i've i think i always read that passage as him dreaming about the stag right and kind of wanting to catch up to his father with you know the the quidditch links and things there so it's quite cool that you know if it's not referring to the doe yeah it's the stag instead so he was following his father at one point and now he's following some resemblance of his mother through the Mm -hmm. forest it's quite cool so do we think that was a conscious effort on joe's part like it's hard to I, say. Coincidental. I tend to th- I tend to think no, just because I agree with Rosie that the original one is probably more focused on the stag. Um, but I don't know. I guess like it's not entirely impossible. Like there could still be a connection there, even if one the first one was the stag and this one is the doe. So maybe if it was a conscious effort, though, it's a conscious effort that only Joe is going to know about. <laughs> that it's, right. it's not kind of obvious enough for for a link to be very clearly made. But the fact that someone's made it is really quite cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Definitely. Genius. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> All right, the next comment comes from Hufflepuff Skeen, and this is on um, Harry jumping into the pond. Um, on page 383 of the U.S. edition, just before Harry gets, into, gets in the pond, he's stripping off and then, quote, he placed the pouch containing his wand, his mother's letter, the shard of Sirius's mirror, and the old snitch on top of his clothes. Then he pointed Hermione's wand at the ice, end quote. Not only is he stripping off all of his clothes, he is also stripping off all of his material attachments, those things that we keep with us because they help us feel better or get through rough times. Associations with this sort of father figures, Hagrid, Dumbledore, and Sirius, and the direct connections to his parents, as well as his material connection to Voldemort that, as was mentioned on the show, was his last line of defense against Voldemort for so long. And this made me think of what Hermione says at the end of Philosopher's Stone. There are more important things, friendship and bravery. After stripping off these things that he carries along with him, what does he have? Bravery to pursue the sword that cannot be wielded without worthiness, and friendship with Ron that actually saves him. Just another book one circle theory connection that I wanted to bring up. I thought this was a really nice way of decoding some of Joe's really great language here. It's really cool, and it it immediately made me think, that these were kind of Harry's Horcruxes, which is a bit weird. Mm. <laughs> um, the things that kind of were the most meaningful to him. So he's got his wand, which is the symbol of him being a wizard and also has this connection to Voldemort. He's got his mother's letter. He's got his godfather's mirror. He's got the snitch, which is kind of a connection to James and kind of a connection of his success. And mm. then he's got his friendship with him being Hermione's wand. And it, yeah, it's interesting. That's a good thought. I had never thought of um, how those objects kind of represent what could potentially be. Not that he'd ever make them, but Harry's no. Horcruxes. That's, They're all so inc- that's incredibly um, meaningful items that he's just carried with him. Right. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I think that and to take that a little step further, it really deepens the parallel to Voldemort. I mean, mm-hmm. he obviously had his own tokens that he made to he used to make his horcruxes kind of in the context where sort of looking for pieces of the deathly hallows and harry is doing the same thing he's gathered these tokens that like you said would be his horcruxes if uh, even though he never would do something like this as he's also exploring um to try to find the deathly hallows and voldemort's horcruxes it's a twisted web (laughs) 
these are kind of um so if if Voldemort's horcruxes are all symbols of power and symbols of deaths these are all symbols of family and symbols of love so they're like anti-horcruxes right. <laughs> and the clothes kind of signal back to uh, I immediately think of like the Weasley sweater that Molly Weasley uh-huh. always knits them hmm. so there's yeah. another connection there oh but That's he didn't true. get one this year Christmas no <laughs> sorry <laughs> I'm sure they're sitting at the house waiting for them yes yeah I'm sure she made them. I hope She's he's got some of his old ones with year. him that he could be wearing at that moment. That would be really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, the next comment comes from KCL, and this is on Snape's motivations for um, putting the sword in the bottom of the pond. And it says, on Snape leaving the sword underwater, the sword needed to be taken under conditions of need and valor, according to Dumbledore in The Prince's Tale. The host did note that, but I just wanted to emphasize it here. Snape's probably not being a complete jerk. This is probably the best and or only way he could find to set up the appropriate conditions for Harry and Ron to retrieve it. So I know there was some discussions about this last week, but yeah, I always assumed it was something like this. I never really saw it as a total jerk move. I saw it basically how Casey did here. Yeah, we definitely gave Snape the benefit of the doubt and decided that this was his most honest moment in him really just trying to help and hopefully no other motivation. So I agree. I agree with this. Good job, Casey. At least he didn't put it in a stone. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, some people did mention in the comments, reckoning, I'm sure, I think that Joe has talked about this, how it's kind of like a King Arthur um, relationship It being in the, instead of being a stone, it's at the bottom of a lake or a pond. Yeah. So it's more like Excalibur than the original sword, yes. Right. They just as there's, there's no such thing as Lady of the Lake in this story. How do you think uh, Harry or Ron would have reacted if they've just happened upon the sword on the ground instead of in the lake? Hmm, that's a good question. I wonder if they would have thought it was fake or a trap. Yeah, that's my that's what I was thinking too. Right, because that's the setup leading up to it. Like Harry isn't really sure about what's going on. Um, I'm trying to like think back to what he. Doesn't is there a point that he is worried that this isn't legit, or am I reading into what people have said or the past episode? Now, no, that's right. He definitely about. thinks to himself that what if this is a trap? He's exposing himself. All of that. Yeah. Yeah. So like that would have played into it, whereas like the very like um, definite and intentional placement here, yeah, it would have been too easy, far too easy, and he would have second guessed it and not done it at all, maybe. All right, and the final comment we have comes from Diskid. Um, This is on the topic of Gryffindors and this um, sword of Gryffindor in particular. When Harry is trying to figure out how to get the sword, he remembers Dumbledore telling him only a true Gryffindor could have pulled the sword out of the hat. This almost implies that you need to be a true Gryffindor to so much as pick up the sword. Does this sword really work that way? Do you need the heart of a true Gryffindor or it'll be like the sword in the stone? If that's the case, does this mean Snape doesn't truly belong in Slytherin even though his personality fits right with it? Or does this not necessarily mean you need to be a true Gryffindor, you just need the bravery of one to retrieve the sword? No doubt you have no doubt you can have the bravery of a Gryffindor without belonging to the house, but I wonder if this was J.K. Rowling yet again showing the housing of Hogwarts as much more complicated than it seems. Wow, good mm. comment. Um there are so many things in there. As far as how the sword works, I guess I never thought of it kind of in that Thor and the hammer type of way. Um, 
I'm not sure it exactly works like that, but maybe. I mean, what do you guys think? I really like this comment because I've been thinking a lot about this whole sorting thing. And I personally believe that if Snape had been put in Gryffindor instead of Slytherin, he would have been a much better person. And he, his bravery would have been able to blossom more. So this is, this is Snape's Gryffindor moment for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree that it's kind of a, a nurture thing. And if he had been in Gryffindor, he would have had better influences around him. Um, in terms of the sword, I think the only a true Gryffindor could have pulled it out of the hat thing is more about the magic of summoning it than actually wielding it. Um, and, you know, the, the hat gave him a tool of Gryffindor because he was a great Gryffindor in that moment. Um, and I think there's there's some magic like when um, when Neville gets it later on, it's it's because he is being brave and he is kind of being the essence of Gryffindor in that moment. I don't think it's necessarily about who can hold it and who can use it and who can touch it. It's more about who it will, who's who's call and whose need it will answer. Um, and I don't think it would ever kind of appear to Snape in the same way that it will appear to Harry and to Neville. Yeah, I totally agree with that. That's basically what I was thinking that if it was there in front of Snape, which it obviously was, he would be able to pick it up. Um, anyone would. Um, and so there was some discussion, you know, why is Grip Hook able to deal with the sword, even though maybe different because he's a goblin. But I think, yeah, anyone could probably pick up the sword if it was in front of them, but it only presents itself. And maybe this is like the last thing we can hammer out is like, and maybe I'm biased as a Gryffindor, but I do <laughs> think that the, the hat will only present itself to someone who was part of Gryffindor house because I, tend to think that Godric Gryffindor would have tied it to his house. You know, whether someone could be brave enough to wield it, you know, if it's there is maybe a different story, but it, it only shows itself, you know, a couple of times in the series, and it's always presented to people from Gryffindor. So I, I tend to think that the sword itself would only present itself to someone from Gryffindor house who's in a moment of need, who's in, who's like showing a true moment of bravery. Neville does pull it out of the hat as well, right? Right. Yeah, because the hat is on his the hat is on his head on fire. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. So if if it's the magic of the hat and that is what presents the sword, could we have skipped the whole camping in the forest hunting for Horcruxes thing and just put the hat on a really good Ravenclaw, a really good Slytherin, a really good Hufflepuff, and got the other Horcruxes that way as they're also <laughs> of the houses? It would have been a lot shorter book. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, get Lena being really, really clever, put the hat on her head, see if she take it off again, see if she's got a crown on. Perfect. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure that Gryffindor would have lent his hat in that manner, but that's that's a cute, that's cute. But it's the sorting hat by then, isn't it? I don't know. All right, well, those are the comments we are reading for this week. Um, there are tons of other great comments, um, some branching off of this discussion of this, the sword, um, so others on Snape and just some general comments on what Harry sees in the dough um, and relating it back to Lily Potter. So head over to the main site and you can read more and continue the discussion. So now let's hop into our podcast question of the week responses. Just a quick reminder of what that question was. In the moments leading up to the destruction of the Horcrux, Harry says to Ron, you got the sword out of the pool. I think it's supposed to be you. Additionally, there's a line of description that says Dumbledore had at least taught Harry something about certain kinds of magic, of the incalculable power of certain acts. Harry's all-too-sudden decision that Ron should be the one to destroy the locket seems to hinge not on Harry offering Ron immediate redemption for leaving, but on some kind of magical insight. 
Where does this insight come from? Why must it be Ron to destroy this Horcrux, and what incalculable power is bestowed upon Ron for doing so? So that that question was posed by Eric, a good one, I think, and the listeners seem to agree. There was quite a lot of responses. I chose a couple here um, of varying differences. That There weren't a whole lot of agreeances this week, which is actually surprising to me. So our first one here comes from Lavelle. It says, I think that the incalculable power is Ron's love. I mean, which way was Ron hit most? It was his ability to love, is it not? Mrs. Weasley's obvious favoritism to Harry, Hermione choosing to stay with Harry, and Ron's jealousy to Harry are the things that the Horcrux touched Ron the most. But Ron's love, his incalculable power, for Harry as a friend and brother, won and came back to finish what he started. I think that destroying the Horcrux was like a symbolism of Ron growing from a jealous boy to an unselfish man. That's really nice. I like it. Yeah, I agree with the symbolism there. It is, um... Yeah, Ron putting away the kind of childish jealousy and um, deciding to to be brave and to to go after the love that he so obviously wanted for so long. Yeah, I do. Th- I do think too that it's nice to say that Ron's incalculable power is love. I think that's really sweet because Ron definitely is looking for that a lot in the series with friendship and with his family and with with everything. And I think that that's really nice. To think about him that way. I'm thinking of this and which of the Horcruxes that Hermione destroys is it the cup? Yeah. Or because there's yeah. not really much symbolism around that, right? She just gets the job done. Which <laughs> maybe is the <laughs> symbolism that we need to employ, Yeah, I think but... he says like you haven't done it yet or something. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. And that's just further Joe ignoring Hufflepuffs and all of their important qualities. But we'll get a whole movie out of fantastic beats about it so we fine <laughs> right exactly yeah a whole three movies really yay <laughs> yay hufflepuffs <laughs> <laughs> so our next comment here comes from Diskid. it says the sword seems to choose its wielder it disappears and reappears for wizards worthy of it this shows the sword is magical in the sense it is picky with who gets to wield it harry was just thinking about how only a true gryffindor can retrieve the sword a few minutes ago while there is no doubt Harry is a true Gryffindor, perhaps Harry felt the sword wanted Ron to wield it as he just retrieved it while saving his best friend. True Gryffindor courage. At that moment in time, the sword chose Ron, and it must be Ron, to destroy the Horcrux. I agree. I feel like that's a Noah moment, like, is the sword alive? <laughs> <laughs> but I think we were talking just a moment ago about the fact that it, um, the sword needed to be retrieved in a moment of, what was it, Valor and... Uh, Need need and valor. Need and valor. Um, So Harry just diving to go and get it in the pond is not particularly need or valerie. Um, Whereas saving someone's life is that kind of that valor. You know, he he's there to save his best friend. So in that moment, it is Ron that should wield the sword because he has proved himself worthy of it. Um, So yeah, it's that moment of. having to fulfill some kind of a quest in order to retrieve the reward in in, in a great kind of legend mythological way um so at this moment yeah the son the sword should belong to ron not harry that's a good point yeah which really like speaks even more to the sword's power right because snape sent the sword to harry 
but the sword like is like mm, not so much dude i gotta wait for the true true person in need and <laughs> waits for like ron to show up to to get it out so it like, seemed like what would have happened had ron not showed up right which is also interesting because you know harry was only in trouble because of the horcrux not because of the sword right. so how did that work how did the sword know that he would be in that kind of dire situation that he would need someone else to come and save him or would the sword have actually been retrieved by harry if he hadn't been an idiot and carried on wearing the horcrux and took everything else off yeah Hmm. interesting are they in cahoots is gryffindor really still working with slytherin all this time later (laughs) (laughs) our last comment here comes from hufflepuff skein it says I don't think it is, quote, incalculable power that is, quote, bestowed upon Ron after killing, after having killed the Horcrux. I think the quote is referring to the, quote, incalculable power that Ron has at the moment to carry out this certain act. He is the one that actually comes up with the sword in the end, and actually if Ron had not taken the plunge too, Harry likely would have drowned and the sword would still be at the bottom of the pond. Therefore, he is the Gryffindor who showed the worthiness that resulted in getting the sword, even if it was a bit of a team effort. He saved Harry, and perhaps that trumps the brave move that diving in to get the sword. So since Ron is now the worthy one with the sword, he has the incalculable power deriving from its magic of it recognizing a rightful bearer, and so his swing at the locket will be more profoundly magical than Harry's. Harry understands this, and that's why he says, I think it's supposed to be you. They need to fully take advantage of the power of the sword to actually kill the Horcrux, so that includes its component magic of worthiness. Ron is most worthy at this point, so its sword juices are flowing super hard for him. If Harry tried with it, it might do some damage with some Gryffindory juices flowing for the boy who lived, but if Hermione came over and tried with the sword right now, I don't think it would do much. Interesting. Which my only thought on that is, again, when we see Hermione use it, I mean, I guess they're kind of in, like, a dire situation. I, I can't remember if she destroys it while they're still, like, drowning in the um, the Gemineo charms effects. But um, maybe it's, like, dire enough that she has to, you know, kill it then. No, Hermione does... Does Hermione ever use the sword? Hermione kills the cup using... Basilisk fangs. Oh, yeah, that's right. She uses the fang. Which, also, the sword... That's kind of why the sword is able to destroy Horcruxes, right? It's because yeah, it because has the, the basilisk fang in it. Yeah. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I don't think Hermione ever uses his sword. Yeah, that's me just forgetting. I I like that this I like that this comment implies that the there's a different level of powerfulness when it comes to Gryffindors. <laughs> that's something I never really thought of before. I don't think I ever really saw the sword as having incalculable power. Yeah, I think I always just saw it as a sword. So this is really interesting to me to, to think about it as having, yeah, these levels of power that are additional to it's just swordness. It's swordness. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I think it's interesting interesting that uh, magic has, it's there's a subtle tone to magic than just flashes of light and big bangs. And this is, a, this is, this shows that in the same way that Harry somehow knew that suddenly he could open the locket with using parcel tongue he now also suddenly knows is it is it's his instinct to magic now that has developed so that he can somehow know that Ron has to be the one to use the sword. Yeah. There's an inherent intelligence and wisdom to magic and to the kind of the powers that live outside of our understanding. 
Um, and for, you know, it's just in the same way that the one chooses the wizard, the sword chooses the Gryffindor. Exactly. Um, and yeah, there's all this kind of, these powers and these choices and all this kind of thing that, that magic can decide within itself, separate to the, the will of the wizard that wants to use it. Um, and I think that's why, that's partly why magic is so, you know, kind of intoxicating to our understanding of it um, and to our kind of imagination, because it's something that we can use and we can harness and we can um, play with, but it's never going to be something that we can fully understand, which leaves so much freedom for imagination and for for um, new ideas and new playing and, and new stories. Um, and that's why magic has, has lived forever within the fictional worlds um, and will live on for many years more. Yes, hopefully. <laughs> sorry literature head on there taking it off now no that's all right <laughs> but that does end our podcast question of the week responses as usual there are more over at alohamora.mugglenet.com so definitely check it out keep the conversation going and a quick round of applause to cat for saying incalculable power so many times in that and not stumbling over it once well then <laughs> i didn't oh i felt like i stumbled but thank you i appreciate that and so we move on to our chapter discussion for this week Chapter 20 Xenophilius Lovegood And so we have a moment of calm after the emotional storm that Ron's return created last week and the boys are really excited about the possibility of outside help whoever sent the dough, whoever sent the sword is obviously there to try and help them on their quest to destroy the Horcruxes even Hermione's anger at Ron can't stop Harry from feeling optimistic about the future for a really nice change, um, as he and Ron catch up on everything that's happened whilst they were apart. The magic of the taboo is revealed, and a lot of theorising happens before the trio finally decide on a course of action and venture off into the wizarding world once more, leaving their camping stuff behind. The camping is um, over! <laughs> yay, finally! I think they've got a little bit more to do, but not quite yet. <laughs> um... So there is an incredible amount of theorising in this chapter, which kind of makes it a really good one for us, but also makes it kind of repetitive. So I'm going to try and lump it all together in little bits. Um, the first kind of theorising that happens um, is is coming from Ron. So he's rejoined the group. He's um, just trying to work out what's happened whilst he was away and, and what's kind of happening now um, that's led them to be back together. And he starts off theorising straight away about the origin of Patronus. Um, and he's got some wild theories where he thinks, you know, is it Kingsley? He's on the run at the moment. No, his is a, a, a big cat. I can't remember what it was. I think it's a lynx. A lynx. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, could it have been Dumbledore? Is Dumbledore still alive? Um, because he had the real sword last, didn't he? Of course, we know it's not Dumbledore, but it's interesting that yet again, Ron asks the exact right question. He had the real sword last, didn't he? But he has the wrong answer. As we know, it was actually Snape that had the real sword last. And if he'd followed that train of thought through, it might have led him to the real origin of the doe. But none of them would ever believe it was Snape. Just thought that was an interesting thing with the kind of Ron and the prophecy kind of thing that he seems to have going on. That he actually has that right question once again. And I do love the moment where Joe, as Harry, puts in the book, no, Dumbledore is dead. I saw him. He's gone. He's dead. Because, yeah. you know, she was probably reading all of those theories 
after half so came about theories. about Dumbledore's alive, you know, all of that stuff. So she had to, I feel like she probably put that in there. You know, obviously it naturally fits, but, you know, I think at least partially maybe in response to all of that. Yeah, so. and the same with the, the eye in the mirror. She was constantly playing with the idea that Dumbledore mm-hmm. might still be alive throughout the book. Exactly, exactly. And speaking of Dumbledore, that's the other main kind of theorising that is going on. They are trying to work out what Dumbledore was doing, why he sent them these kind of very odd, very, very cryptic messages, um, and and whether he knew more than he was letting on, as per usual. Um, then there's a really lovely moment that, you know, we don't often talk about the the kind of horrible term, but bromance between Ron and Harry, um, which is interesting seeing as they are so close and we should probably talk about it more. Um, but there's just this lovely quote where Ron kind of goes, he knew what he was doing when he gave me the deluminator, didn't he? He must have known I'd run out on you. And Harry turns around and says, no, he must have known you'd always want to come back. And that's just mm. such a little heartwarming moment. It's like, oh, you yeah, too. Harry's, Harry's so quick to like make Ron feel welcome and like yeah. that he didn't do anything wrong. Um, it's it's kind of when I was rereading it again, it, it almost takes me aback that he's so quick. And maybe it's just because he knows Hermione's being so hard and he doesn't want to run the risk of losing Ron again. And he knows he was partly to blame for it the last time. So, But just considering how kind of explosive their fight was that led to them falling out and, and for Ron going away, you know, to to be so forgiven so suddenly and so quickly and, and so completely is just amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I don't think Ron would have been expecting it either. And, you know, he... He's constantly trying to get back in Hermione's good books in this chapter, and I think he must be so relieved to not have to do that with Harry as well, but he would have been totally expecting that he would need to do it for both of them. Right. I I think, too, that Harry in this moment is just feeling incredibly happy. He doesn't care about what happened in the past. They just destroyed a horcrux. Ron is back. I mean, it even says in here that he's having a hard time keeping a straight face. He's so happy. Mm -hmm. So I think that Harry's mood has a lot to do with how nice and forgiving he is to Ron in that moment as well. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And thinking about that, it's really interesting that he is so kind of euphoric in this moment. I mean, obviously they have just achieved one of the main aims, but there is still a a long way to go before they're anywhere near actually defeating Voldemort. Um, Is it just the joy of having his friends back together and and a small success that is making him so happy? Yeah, small victories, I think. In a case like this, you would have to celebrate anything. One thing that he can't celebrate, unfortunately, um, is, you know, the loss of his wand. And he is struggling with the Blackthorn wand um, that he has received from from Ron, who managed to take it from a Snatcher while he was away. Um, and it just, it seems like it's a bit of a trickster wand. Um, Hermione's guilt at breaking Harry's wand is making her kind of follow her heart and not her head for a change and she's she's kind of saying it will work she's almost willing it as much as possible even though she knows that you know the one chooses the wizard and that there is no definitive answer to the to harry being able to um make it work for him so she's kind of going against everything she knows about wand law at this moment just to say it'll be it'll be fine just keep using it just needs practice and i assume that it doesn't work as well because he didn't win it right yeah yes yeah do they they know about the do they know that they have to win over the wand for it to use for it to work properly? Not yet. Not until they talk to Ollivander in a few t- um, chapters' time. Yeah, that's right. Right. 
Um, but looking at Pottermore, as we always do when we come across a wand, um, one wood, um, there's a, a little bit of the paragraph towards the end that says, The wands made from this wood appear to pa- need to pass through danger or hardship with their owners to become truly bonded. Given this condition, the Blackthorn wand will become as loyal and faithful a servant as one could wish. So Blackthorn wands are incredibly loyal. They're like the Hufflepuff of wands. Um, <laughs> So to be trying to be used by another, it just kind of throws tantrums over the place. Um, So Harry's trying to practice on a spider and yeah, fine, I will definitely make that really scary spider as big as you want it, but you want to make it smaller? No, it's going to be scary. You can't use me. (laughs) You are making me, yeah. It's just a trickster and it's just, yeah, a little bit of a toddler wand, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Did we ever find out where that came from? I don't Um, think so, right? Just one of the snatchers that tried to take Ron, I think. He he had some spares that he handed out. Yeah, I, I guess I meant specific character, but no, yeah, I don't think no. we ever find out. No. Is it a movieism that it's Malfoy's? Um, Malfoy's, Malfoy's wand one. comes from Malfoy Manor. Yeah, right, right. Right. But I'm saying that in in the movie, like Ollivander holds up the wand. This is a Blackthorn wand. This was Malfoy's. Maybe they made that connection in the movie, and I'm just thinking of it that way. Does he say Blackthorn? I'm not sure. That's why I'm asking. I know in the book for sure that it's not, because Harry gets Draco's wand when he fights it from him at Malfoy Manor. Right. So at this moment, at least, it's not Draco's. I don't I don't know about the movie. I, I don't recall. I recall that moment, but I don't remember what he says specifically. Okay. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think Draco's is a... No, Draco's is Hawthorne, so a different kind of thorn. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there you go. So they're camping out. They spend some time getting back to to knowing each other again, to kind of um, catching up with everything that's gone on. Um, And Hermione seems to be sulking with her books for most of the time um, until she kind of finally storms up to Harry and, and says, you need to look at this. We need to talk about this. We need to go and see Xenophilius Lovegood. Um, and her reasoning for this is that the mark um, in Beetle the Bard that um, Dumbledore gave her, to her has been now seen pretty much everywhere that they think is going to be important to them. So they've gone to Godric's Hollow and they've seen it on the gravestone. They've seen it in Beetle the Bard and they've seen it now in um, the the letter that Albus Dumbledore wrote to um, Grindelwald that has been published inside the the life and times life and lies of Albus Dumbledore. Um, so Hermione is kind of playing connect the dots and decides that they need to ask someone who actually knows about what this sign means. And the only person alive that they know of that has been wearing the mark and and can tell them something about it is the father of their friend Luna, Xenophilius Lovegood. And throughout this whole thing, you know, they're they're still trying to guess at Dumbledore's motives. They're still still trying to guess at why he's sending them on this journey because they have no idea what this mark means. Um, Ron is just going to agree with everything Hermione says. He's totally trying to get into her good books and they all know it, but they all kind of just play along anyway. Um, And he he says, you know, the Lovegoods are on Harry's side. Um, The Quibbler has been posting lots of things about supporting Harry. Um, and then Ron eventually says, cheer up, it's the Christmas holidays, Luna will be home. And, you know, just reading back, this is so heart-wrenching. <laughs> it's not true. It is. It's that kind of awful fake foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. 
Mm-hmm. There's definitely a lot of foreshadowing in this in that yeah. section. Yes. What do we think about Hermione's kind of overriding desire to to know what this mark means? Is it that she really does believe that Dumbledore is sending her on this journey and that there must be some kind of reason for it, or is it just her kind of trying to solve a puzzle that she can't work out herself? What what's going on here? Is it just the only lead that they have? I think it's a a bit of all three. Honestly, I think that Hermione is is desperate for some sort of sign or direction or any bits of good news to keep the momentum going. And I do think that she, she truly trusts Dumbledore in this moment. So I think it's a bit of all three. Yeah, me too. I think I think they want so bad to really hear something from Dumbledore after he's gone. And he left Hermione this book, and the book has the clues. So I think she, I think I think she wants to work out the puzzle, and she wants it to be from Dumbledore. Mm-hmm. Also, the fact that they had no direction and like no real clues to go on was really one of the bigger like contention points when before Ron left when they were fighting. Harry, Ron like screaming at Harry, "You have like no idea what we're doing." And here Hermione is really <clears throat> working hard, trying to get anything she can in front of them to give them some direction. That's interesting. So I was about to say that I found it quite interesting that. Hermione was sulking so much about Ron's return and that she doesn't give any kind of sign of of happiness that he's back. So right. if it is that she is trying to kind of create some reason for him to stay, like she's solving the argument that they'd already had all the way all that time back in back before he left. She's she's definitely making sure that he can't have that argument again and can't leave again. That adds quite a nice spin to it as to why she's doing it. Mhm. Yeah, look, we've made progress. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave yeah. me again. Yeah. <laughs> or the birds are coming back and flying at your face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do also find it interesting that she doesn't care about the doe in any way. There's no kind of sign of her being interested in who cast that, which is quite a mystery. Hmm. Yeah, I never yeah. thought of that. Yeah, she's pretty over it by now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does Hermione know that it was Snape? Maybe. Interesting. I think she would have said so if it was Snape. Yeah. If she knew it, it was Snape. <laughs> yeah, she's just, just marching onward and leaving him in the past, I guess. Yeah. I guess this is the path that she believes Dumbledore has left for her, so this is the one that she wants to follow. Yeah. And follow it they do. They they head off to the Lovegood's house, um, which Ron knows is somewhere near his own burrow. Um, he kind of says that his parents just always pointed towards the hills um, as to where the Lovegoods would live so they head off in that direction um, and first of all come across quite an empty looking cottage which you know I would love to live in if it's halfway between the Lovegoods and the burrow um, <laughs> but as they head on um, to the next hill they discover a very strange looking house which I thought was quite an interesting description coming from Ron um, although it probably doesn't actually come from Ron it's just connected to you know the burrow is always described as looking strange as well um but this time it looks like a rook um as in the chess piece rook um commonly known as a castle and i thought that was quite an interesting thing for a house it's it's not really a house it's more of a fortress or a tower um Mm -hmm. and i i did a quick wiki search on it and it also said that um the the chess piece was designed perhaps to look like a siege tower or some kind of a fortress tower that um is is meant to be kind of symbolic of you know warfare and 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 sieges um so considering what is about to happen in that house and the fact that there is about to be an attack and there is about to be um 
you know, this, this idea of them being trapped inside and the bad guys on the outside, there's an interesting foreshadowing there that this tower is about to become the scene of a battle. Mm, that's true. I had not thought of that. That's a good... Yeah, because I always... For some reason, just like that description, the idea of like it being a rook for ne- for it never really matched the love goods for me. I don't know; it's not quirky enough. Uh, I just imagine something a little more outlandish. But yeah, it's a good foreshadowing. Yeah, I thought this was a clue when I first read the book. I thought it was a clue to Ron's chess abilities, mm-hmm. and that that would come up in the final battle. But I don't think it ever did. Well, and too, the the castle and all those supporting pieces are kind of the protectors of the of the queen, right? So maybe Harry, in this case, is the queen. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Aside from the idea of the the siege tower aspect of it, though, um, when I when I first read it, kind of before I did all this research, I thought of it as more like a fairy tale castle, more like you know the Rapunzel's tower with with Luna being the princess stuck at the top. So. That kind of whimsy aspect of the kind of fairy tale seemed to work to me. But I do like this new kind of theory of fa- the fortresses. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. um, on entering the house, um, after a, a quick moment where Xenophilia seems to not want Harry to come in, um, there is a moment of definite hesitation and of looking around and of, of, of trying to deflect him and trying to make him go away. Um, we discover that the the whole kind of place is is decorated by Luna. It's very bright and colourful. Everything is very round to fit in with the the round tower, um, which which strikes me as again a perfect thing for them. There's nothing conventional. There's no kind of square kitchen in the corner. It's all a nice round room. They then go upstairs, and Harry says that it's cluttered and like the room of requirement. He has a kind of a flashback to the room of lost things, which is such mm. an interesting link between of course, the diadem. Um, and we also get the, the description of the stone bust of Ravenclaw with a, a bizarre looking headdress that they've made, <laughs> which is, of course, very similar to what Harry has done himself in that room of lost things. So we've got a direct link here. We, we couldn't get any clearer with the hints that Joe is laying for us in this chapter <laughs> as to true. where that diadem is hidden. Did anyone put it together? No. I don't think so. Nope. <laughs> Obviously, I I thought of the, you know, the diadem when they were talking about the headdress, but I never thought, I'd never put the connection together with the room of requirement before. And it's so blatantly there, like, he talks about that exact room, a paragraph before he talks about the diadem. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's there. And there's also, besides that, there's also lots of little hints in here that Zeno is going to turn against Harry, yep. not necessarily because he wants to, but, you know, he covers up the the machine and he's mumbling to himself, well, you know, I'm, I, I'm afraid, I don't, th- I don't think we should do it. He's like, come in quickly, quickly. And there's all these just little moments. And it's, uh, it's painfully clear that Zeno is being forced to do something he definitely doesn't want to. Yeah. Um, this time reading through, I, I picked up on quite a few similarities between Xenophilius and Hagrid. Um, this kind of um, unfaltering march into danger, the kind of not seeing that um, the magical items that they possess are very dangerous, um, like the Arumpent Horn, um, and this kind of um, blundering devotion almost to magical artifacts or magical creatures. Um Obviously, they're very different people, um, but I just thought it was quite interesting that there are, you know, these similarities between these two male figures that don't quite fit in in the Wizarding World. 
um, and their obsessions. Just me. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I've never made that connection before because Hagrid yeah. is so fond of magical creatures, dangerous mag- magical creatures, and so is Xenophilius in a way. Yeah. I wonder if they've ever met. Not that I mean, what that would look though, like. Right? Yeah, we don't really know how old Xenophilius is. I was just thinking the same thing, yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Seemingly, I mean, he seems aged, but Luna's pretty young, so... So, if we're going by the age of Luna, and the fact that she is Ginny's age, you could be ranging between, you know, the age of the Weasleys, the Malfoys are perhaps a little bit older than they were, he's definitely not going to be as old as the riddles and, and um and Hagrid so there's a possibility of Hagrid I mean Hagrid would would have been at the school as groundskeeper when when Xenophilius would have been there so they probably would have met that's true I wonder if Xenophilius ever took care of magical creatures he probably would have done but he would have probably gotten quite annoyed at care of, ma- care of magical creatures because <laughs> they wouldn't have believed in half of the ones <laughs> that's that <he> true did. <laughs> Luna did Luna take that class I don't think we ever see her in it do we I don't think so. Well, she would have been in Ginny's year, so we wouldn't have right. seen her with, with Harry. Um, but I would imagine that Luna and Hagrid <laughs> got on quite well as well. <laughs> I bet they did. So the main thing that made me think of this is um, Xenophilius's kind of complete focus on the Arumpent Horn, which he is saying is the, the horn of the Crumplehorn Snorkak. Um, and the Arumpent Horn is something that Hermione recognises because of its description in Fantastic Beasts. And I thought there was just an interesting connection there um, between, you know, this new movie series that we're about to have and and will we see the Arumpent perhaps in that movie? Um, But also the fact that we're in Luna Lovegood's house at the moment and we've got this mention of Fantastic Beasts. And as we know, Luna goes on to marry um, uh, Newt Scamander's... Yeah, Newt Scamander's grandson, Ralph. Um, So there's an interesting hunting for magical creatures um, genealogy within this house. Um, yeah, it was definitely meant to be. Yeah. Sorry to all of those Luna <laughs> and Neville shippers out there. I was about to say the same. <laughs> um, Hermione's insistence, however, that it is an rampant horn and not the hump- the 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 horn of the Crumblehorn Snorkak, um, antagonizes Xenophilius, and he gets quite worked up, um, which then leads them to ask where Luna is, and. You know, this is the turning point within Xenophilius. You can kind of see a moment where he shuts down and gives up his kind of hedging. Um, And it makes me wonder, would he actually have called the Death Eaters if Harry, Ron and Hermione hadn't antagonised him and then reminded him that Luna was missing because of them? Hmm. What do you guys think? I'd like to think that no, but I think yes. Unfortunately, I think that Zeno is going to do anything he could possibly do to get Luna back, even if that means, you know, giving up Harry Potter. It's clear by the rest of the chapter that he's been already, you know, stressing about it and dealing with it and internalizing, going back and forth with himself. Should he give him up? Should he not? Because it doesn't even want to let him in the house, which I think is him trying to be like, if you don't come in, I don't have to give you up. Go away. But he selfishly wants Luna back because she's all he really has. Yeah, I agree. I think that really there's little that he that would have um, turned him away from doing anything to get Luna back. Mm-hmm. And getting he 
uh, him working for getting Luna back is going against the greater good of defeating Voldemort. That's true. But people definitely act selfishly when it comes to love and family. We see that. I mean, Snape. Let's be real. Yeah. What do you think is the reason why Xenophilius didn't tell the trio that Luna had been taken straight away? Was it always that he was just going to plan on, on tricking them and and, um, and this plan has already been set in place just in case that they ever turned up on his doorstep? Um, or, or did he kind of concoct this plan whilst they were sat there? I kind of always assumed that for the deal to go through, for him to actually get Luna back, it would ha- the other side of it would be the Death Eaters actually getting them um, and like getting them out of there and successfully taking them captive or whatever. So telling them obviously would have deterred that. I think that that, that also, um, it depends on the fact that the Death Eaters knew that Harry would at some point go to see Xenophilius, and I'm not sure that they specifically did because they only take Luna because of what he's printing in the Quibbler. It doesn't necessarily mean that Harry is going to go to him for any reason, so I'm not sure that the Death Eaters getting Harry was ever a part of the deal. I think they just wanted Xenophilius to stop printing the quote truth. Yeah, sorry, I should have reframed. Like, what I meant is in, in um, his mind, in Xenophilius's mind, that would have been the good enough deal. Like, that yeah, that, right, that yeah. w- was the ultimate. Not that the Death Eaters made him think that. So my bad, I'm not explaining that clearly. Which makes the betrayal worse because it is then Xenophilius's idea rather than something that the Death Eaters have ordered. Um, right, yeah. And it still kind of makes you wonder why... Well, I guess Xenophilius doesn't actually trust in Harry as much as he kind of claims to have done through his paper. Um, because, you know, if he did, then perhaps he would have asked Harry to save Luna rather than offer him up on a platter instead. But does he have a reason not to trust Harry? I'm not sure that he does. I guess he just thinks of him as a kid and not powerful enough to save his daughter against the Death Eaters when, you know... Xenophilius obviously couldn't have done anything about it. Which is a little short-sighted considering all the stuff that he believes and all the things that he believes in and the, the powers and nargles and all of and that. And the fact that his daughter has got their faces painted on the ceiling of her bedroom. Right. Yeah, I just think he's just really acting rashly and obviously irrational from an outsider's perspective just because so frantic at the thought of his daughter being taken. He'll Yeah. There's not a lot of clear thinking going on. I wonder how he and Luna were when they reunited and when Luna found out what he did to her friends. I wonder about that moment. Do you think he ever told her? I think I see Luna as a very forgiving person. She never holds a grudge against Bronn despite all the kind of horrible things that he says about her and at the beginning at least um, and just is happy to have anyone be friendly and be loving towards her. So I think she would forgive her father because of the the fact that he did it for love for her. Yeah, and it all worked out in the end. Oh, that's sweet, but probably true. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Xenophilius kind of wins points for being a good father, but loses them for being a bad friend. But he does offer them some answers um, 
to the main thing that they are wanting to discover. So they eventually manage to sit down to a, a nice pot of Gurdy root tea, um, <laughs> and we get the moment where they where they ask, you know, what does this symbol mean? And he says, are you referring to the sign of the Deathly Hallows? And then the chapter ends, and you just have to pause and think, they did the thing! The title of the book thing! Mm-hmm. Finally, some <laughs> answers! No, wait, that's got to be in the next chapter. Never mind. <laughs> yeah. We know that we're getting into the meat of the book, at least. And that is the end of the chapter. It's a short one. It is, but I think it's it's so much theorising and so much... It's a bit of a transitory chapter again. We're going from the the high drama of the, the quest of the last chapter... Um, and into the discovery and the information of the next chapter that we kind of just needed this little bridge of of calm in between. Yeah, this is definitely the the beginning of the climax here, yeah. where things are going to start happening very quickly, very, very quickly. So now it's time for our podcast question of the week. And there's just this one little line that we're going to pull from here. And we hope that you like this kind of fantastic question. <laughs> it is. Xenophilius mentions that he received the Arumpin horn from a, quote, delightful young wizard who knew of my interest in the exquisite Snorkak, and that he intended it as an early Christmas surprise for Luna. This reminded us of the moment when Hagrid, quote, wins Norbert, or Noberta, in a drunk game from a then-disguised quarrel. Given the similarities in these situations and in the characters, who do we think the, quote, delightful young wizard that Xenophilius met was? Is it a Death Eater trap or purely a coincidence? So you know what to do. Come up with your answers. Head over to alohamora.mugglenet.com, write them down or send us an audio boom, and you just might hear them on the next episode. And we want to thank Denise for joining us this week, this holiday week, all the way from Sweden. We hope you had a good time on the show. Absolutely. It was, a, it was absolute delight. Yay. And I'm, gl- I'm so glad the Snorkak is from your home country. I'll keep an eye out for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, be sure to let us know if you find one. Yes, absolutely. And if you guys would like to be on the show just like Denise was, you can click on our Be On The Show page over at alohamora.mugglenet.com. If you have a set of Apple headphones, then you're all set. Um, There's no other kind of fancy equipment needed, just a microphone and the internet. And in the meantime, if you want to keep in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter at alohamoramn, facebook.com slash Dumbledore. On Tumblr at MN Alohomora Podcast. Our Instagram is Alohomora MN. Our website, as you know, is alohomora.mugglenet.com. Don't forget to download a ringtone for free while you're there. And also, you can always send us an owl at Audioboom. Head over to alohomora.mugglenet.com. It's free. All you need is an internet connection and a microphone. Click the little green button in the right hand menu. Keep your message under 60 seconds, and you could hear yourself on the show. Also, make sure to check out our store, a perfect thing to do during the holiday season. There are tons of great products on there for humans and pets alike with all of our favorite slogans and so much more. So check it out. And of course, our smartphone app. It is now free. Just search for the podcast source in your phone's app store and you'll be able to find us. There's all sorts of great things on there like transcripts, bloopers, alternate endings and the like. So definitely go download that. And starting in January, Alohomora will be a patron of Patreon. Um, listeners will be able to give a monthly pledge, as little as a dollar, um, to help fund the show and keep the discussion going. There's going to be more details on that in the coming weeks. Definitely kind of keep an eye out on Twitter and on Facebook for our announcement when that goes up. Um, we're quite excited about it. We hope that you are too. Um, and just thank you for any support you can give on that. We really do appreciate it. 
Yes. And speaking of supporting things, we just wanted to give a quick shout out to a new MuggleNet podcast that just launched this week. It's called Speak Beastie, and it focuses on Fantastic Beasts and Newt Scamander and that entire world. The first episode is getting rave reviews already. You guys should definitely head over and check it out. You can find out details, follow them on Twitter at Speak Beastie, or head over to MuggleNet and look under the Specialty Sites tab, and you'll see they've got a little page there. So definitely check it out. It's very funny and definitely worthwhile. Especially if you're looking forward to Fantastic Beasts, because there's no other show out there for it. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Alohomora and our last episode to release in 2015. So we hope you enjoy the new year. I'm Caleb Graves. I'm Rosie Morris. And I'm Kat Miller. Thank you for listening to episode 170 of Alohomora. Open the Dumbledore. I can't imagine that an infusion of Gertie root is good. It just, <laughs> no. I mean, I can't, any drink That was another one root. of my Xenophilius and Hagrid things. It's like the rock cakes all over again. Oh my gosh. Yes, Disgusting. that is on the same level. <laughs> That's kind of one of my favorite scenes in that little Xenophilius thing in the movie where they're all just yeah. like sipping the <laughs> disgusting, disgusting drink. Disgusting tea. <laughs>